Okay, it is time for our kids' corner. Not sure how I missed that one today in our bulletin, but kids, actually, if you could come up in here, that would keep us on video. And that, anyway, it's a little cooler in here. You might like that. Uh, so, uh, so I incorporated, by the way, a verse from Song of Solomon into our reading. I bet that hasn't happened very often before. But there is a direction in where I'm going, and it's kind of like this. I'm so glad we have girls here today, by the way. We, we really need this one for girls. So now, I'm, I'm guessing, Ben, you're probably not going to raise your hand too much when I ask this question, but you might surprise me. So how many of you guys have sort of thought out what your wedding day is going to be like? <laughs> Is that something that little girls still do, or is that just sort of an old-timey thing that, you know? Hmm, you're putting me on the spot here, kiddos. I, I, I don't know, but, you know, I was sort of under the impression that, you know, when you were a, a girl, you sort of imagined how one day Prince Charming was going to show up on his stallion, right? No, not that. Ah, maybe I got to get you when you're like 13 or 14. That might be a little bit better. No, still, the, the boys are still going to be icky then, you think? Yeah, they're, they're the most icky then, probably, honestly. But, you know. All right. Um, anyway, I want to talk about marriage today. But, you know, it might seem to you guys like you're really young to be talking about this subject. But did you know, if you lived in Jesus' time, you'd be just the right age for what's about to be described. Okay? And I need you to listen to this story I'm going to tell during my sermon today. And I need you to say, yay or nay. Yeah, I, I think that's really cool, and I'd like it if we did it that way. Or, holy mackerel, oh my gosh, what were they thinking? That's terrible, right? Okay, so I'm counting on you guys for honest opinion on this. So I'm going to hit you up a couple times while I'm talking to the big people, okay? All right? And all I need is yes or no, right? Yes or no, good or bad or whatever, right? Um, or medium. Yeah, medium will work too, maybe. But I have a feeling that you're going to have some uh, some thoughts on some of these things. All right, let me chat with the biggins. And uh, so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So that didn't go quite as I had planned. Um, I know, uh, I know, and, and maybe, maybe I should have got more clarification on this in my conversation with Lisa on it, but I was under the impression that sometime around that age that, you know, she had visions of what her wedding would be like. And, and actually, in order to talk about this really well, I need to get us back into kind of cultural mindset here because there's a really big difference between 21st century American thinking and what Jesus was accustomed to and 
the people he was talking to 2,000 years ago, half a world away in Israel, right? And now kind of circling back to bringing Lisa into this, I want to see if you guys can pick out the culture and time I'm talking about when I tell you about her thoughts on weddings, right? And it goes something like this, you know, the uh, powder blue leisure suit with the bell bottoms, you know, right? Now, and I'm not trying to pick on some of you because you might have been there, right? <laughs> but what, what era am I talking about? Is this like, does this not scream 1970s, right? Okay. So, you know, if you said that to somebody today, they'd look at you like you had a third eye in the middle of your forehead and, you know, ask you, what are you thinking? That's definitely not how you do a wedding, right? Anyway, um, we got to get this kind of square because one of the biggest analogies Jesus uses is the wedding. And, you know, I don't know if you caught this also, but our responsive reading today, isn't that the script that we usually use for communion, right? Did you know it's connected together? And, and the Passover for that matter too. Um, you know, the Passover or Last Supper, where that script comes from, you know, a, an ordinary Passover follows a pretty scripted line. Jesus went way off script. It's not the story, it's not the Passover story that the disciples would have been expecting. So if I start out with, "'Twas the night before Christmas," all through the house, right? Everyone knows what's supposed to come next, right? But if I said, "'Twas the night before Christmas, the most beautiful girl in the world," you know, and all through the world, I was hunting my bride, you, you would sort of begin to think, well, what's this guy actually talking about? This doesn't sound at all like the script that it's supposed to be. And so, Jesus goes into full wedding script mode. And I want to show that to you today. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it's important to get because Jesus' teaching is really basic if you're a first century Jew. And his messages are self-evident. God wants to be known and understood. So, in order to appreciate what Jesus is trying to say, this is what I want to do. I want to tell you how weddings used to be. Okay, kids, this is where you got to listen up and see if you like this idea. You see, when kids were 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, they were the right age. Not to get married, but for this. Their fathers got together. His father and her father, and they started to hash out an agreement, a covenant, actually. Does this sound good so far, kids? Want your dad's planning this for you, or I see a lot of negative on this. All right. And the fathers actually drew up a legally binding wedding covenant, which is like a solemn contract 
that they were obligated and they obligated their children to fulfill. All right? First part of that covenant was the bride price. That's how much the bride, how much, I'm sorry, the groom and his family is going to pay to buy the bride. How's this sound so far? Are we good yet? Kids, good? No? Seeing a lot of negative out there. And actually, the bride price transfers ownership of the girl to her father-in-law's family. Oh, how about that one? Not good? You don't like that idea? Oh, come on, guys. It's a wedding. It's supposed to be fun, right? The second part of the covenant, I know, and by the way, if you were the father of the bride, you know, you would want to sell your daughter to the highest bidder, right? How about that? Does that sound better? Still not good. All right. All right, all right, all right. See if this starts to sound better. Now, if you were the boy, right, Ken, check this one, right? So her father, you know, we're also going to negotiate for what we get in return here. And her family is expected to provide a dowry. That's the money that would be necessary to take care of her in case something happens to you, right? So she's got to come with that kind of money or usually livestock and other things like that. How's that sound? Is that good? Are we getting any better? No, still do? Oh my, you guys are a hard sell. All right, so... In any event, the dowry is drawn up, and that's what she would live on. It's usually money or gold coins or bracelets or jewelry, and maybe a number of other things, goats, cows, something along that line. How about this? In addition to those things, the fathers agreed how many children, roughly, and what their names were going to be. And most specifically, we're talking about how many sons the bride is expected to produce. I see a lot of really negative ones coming in. You don't like this idea at all. Oh, come on, guys. So, now you might be tempted at this point to think that we do things better today, right? But uh, anyway, and in fact, you might be asking, what does love have to do with any of those things? You see, the idea of a romantic wedding for most people only stems back 150, 200 years. Before that, it was assumed that a good groom would learn to love his wife and that a good wife would learn to respect and remain true to her husband. And up until about 1900 or so, the whole world knew what a covenant was. In the West, the basis of relationships, though, has become romance. That is that mushy, gushy, oh, I'm so in love feeling, right? But what happens to the relationship when that feeling ends? If that's all that the relationship is based on, and it falls apart, doesn't that end the relationship? But a covenant is actually much different than that. The covenant goes kind of like this. 
It's actually what makes the two one flesh. The covenant does that. It's not the consummation, guys. The two are physically and spiritually related by the covenant. She becomes his adopted sister, and he her brother. Now, I know that sounds really icky now, but anyway, bear with me here on this. The thing is, when is your brother or your sister no longer your brother or sister? Never. Never ever. Right? Paul says that such a covenant exists between the church and Jesus. Anyway, once the fathers are satisfied, the covenant is then copied, and each party goes its separate way. And by the way, kids, think if you like this part of this, you may not know about this yet. They might not tell you for a couple more years who they've arranged, right? You don't need to know that yet. <laughs> okay, really negative, okay. All right. So at the right time, and that right time is usually when girls are 13 or 14 or boys are 15 or 16, right? Kids, you okay with that one so far? Still now. Oh, you're such a hard sell. Okay. At that time, uh, when the bride price is ready to be paid and the dowry is ready to go, a betrothal occurs. Now, a betrothal is not quite like an engagement here in the West, although it's often portrayed that way. The betrothal turns this agreement, this covenant, into a legally binding marriage. But yet still there's more. The wedding itself doesn't occur till a year or so later. On the agreed upon day, that is for the betrothal, the boy and girl are awakened and sent to the temple, to the mikvah. Remember that from last week? They're going to get ceremonially clean before God, before they can enter into their betrothal. And a parade forms, pots and pans are clanged together, or however we can alert the whole village that something's going on. A parade forms, and everyone joins the parade, and the parade wins its way through town and out the city gate, and in sight of the city gate, see the city gate is where all the officials are. That's where their office is located, right? In the sight of the city gate, a hoopah is erected. That's one of these four posts with the canopy over top, right? Kids, you still with me on this? Because this is where it's going to get a lot of fun, all right? <laughs> okay. And see if this starts to sound like stuff that you've heard other places in the Bible now. The hoopah is basically this four post usually held by four siblings, right? And the canopy over top represents the descending grace of God on the couple underneath. All the townspeople, anyone that heard, gathers around, even passing caravans stop. And sometimes the dregs of society that live outside the city wall join in, all within sight of the city gate and the officials there, because you can't ratify a covenant without witnesses. 
And the boy's father begins reading from the covenant, and he presents the bride price to her father. And, the, and her father makes sure that the money is there, the livestock is pure, blemish-free livestock, whatever it may be, he inspects it and accepts it. And when he accepts it, the crowd shouts, Amen! And this is your job, okay? You're going to be my crowd here. So, Amen! Amen! Right? Loud enough that the people in the city gate can hear it, right? Okay. All right. Next, the girl's father reads from the covenant and presents the dowry to the boy's father. Money, livestock, again, whatever it may be. And the boy's father accepts it. And when he signals that it's acceptable, you shout, Amen! Amen. Right? Okay. The boy's father then announces to the bride, you were bought with a price and commends her to honor her body. Is this starting to sound familiar from other scripture? Under the hoopah, the bride and groom exchange gifts. <clears throat> and the most important part of the betrothal occurs. The groom's father hands him a pitcher and a cup, and he pours wine into the cup, and he is nervous. He's got to offer the cup to his bride, and she has the ability to accept or refuse, okay? And in fact, this ability is referred to during that moment as all authority on heaven and earth. She has the ability to call this thing off. Of course, if she does it, there's probably going to be a riot at this point. But, you know, <clears throat> um, and he is truly nervous about it. If she, if she refuses the cup, it nullifies the entire agreement. It's also said that she holds the keys right now. She can bind or loose this agreement. All right, is this stuff starting to sound familiar from other parts of Scripture? Her authority. By the way, if she sips from that cup and returns it to the groom, the bridegroom, he does not get a choice. He will drink. The only choice in the matter is hers. Okay, girls, did that make things a lot better? Okay. <laughs> What about you, Ben? Did that make things a lot better? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So, when he sips the cup, assuming she does, and then he takes a sip, he then says to her, by this covenant you are now consecrated to me by the laws of Moses and Israel. Surely I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I do so in my father's house. In other words, I'm going to hold off on wine until my wedding day at my father's house. So, um, and the crowd shouts, Amen. Amen. Okay, at this, the triple Amen ratifies the covenant, the city gate, the officials take note and seal the covenant, 
the two are now legally bound and married. But they didn't have the wedding yet. That's still off in the future, right? So, before the bride leaves the hoopah, the groom places a veil over the bride. She will wear the veil until she's married. The veil says to every other man that sees her, I'm already taken and I intend to remain pure for, for, my, for my groom. Okay, so by the way, what are Jesus' disciples hearing at the Last Supper? They're hearing the wedding, right? We've established this, right? Or at least they're hearing betrothal so far. And by the way, it was during this betrothal period that the Holy Spirit came on, on Mary when, and Jesus was conceived. Can you see why that would be such a big deal in this culture, right? And probably why Joseph and Mary spent a good stretch of time away from Nazareth. Between the betrothal and the wedding, the bridegroom needs to prepare for a feast, a feast that will last for seven days with his family and hers. He also needs to build a special room onto his father's house, the bridal chamber. Now, you know, so, the word that the Bible uses for this is nymphon in Greek, which is an interesting combination of words because it, it, it kind of combines hope and joy and bliss into one concept, okay? Uh, now, we know from Greek culture otherwise, people that lived in Numphan are said to have lived an easy life. So out of this word, the King James Bible translates Numphan to mansion. All right? With me so far? Jesus goes on, and he says to his disciples, In my Father's house there are many Numphans. There are many mansions, or are there many bridal chambers? Okay. Uh, the disciples are clearly hearing wedding out of this because Philip immediately responds to Jesus and says, just show us the Father. That'll be enough. Right? But Jesus goes on and tells his disciples at the right time, a time known only to the Father, I'm coming back to take you to my father's house, just as he had covenanted with them moments before. So back to the wedding here, a year or so later, when the bridegroom has all the preparations for the wedding feast complete, his father tells him, I will tell you when. Only the father knows. I will tell you when. People try to read the signs of the times. The bride needs to be ready, after all. Only one man knows, and that's the father of the groom. Jesus equates his second coming with a Galilean wedding. In the middle of the night, the father wakes up the bridegroom and tells him, go get your bride. And the shofar is blown, the horn is blown, and the whole village is awakened, 
and a chant begins to spread through the town. The bridegroom is coming. The bridegroom is coming. And the groom's party takes a litter, that is a chair, basically on two sticks, right, to go fetch the bride. The bride is expected to be ready. So once the bride is awakened by the rustle uh, going through the village, it's important to her, for her and her maids to be ready with oil in their lamps. And they light the oil, they light their lamps, put them in a basket because it's nighttime now and nighttime in Israel is windy and like the flame to blow out. So you put it in a bushel basket and hold the basket here. So the basket is illuminating the faces of the bridesmaids and the bride, and she should be standing outside waiting for the groomsmen when they get there. The groom is on behind. So once the bride is seated on the litter and lifted up, the groom makes his appearance, and the two of them are together. In other words, he meets her in midair. We got this so far. <laughs> you know, it, it, it really is what Jesus is talking about. So anyway, she's carried back. The procession makes its way back to the groom's father's house where all attendants are given, presented with ceremonial white robes and the doors are locked. No one comes in, no one goes out for seven days. Right? By the way, the ceremonial robe, you want to do this in the Middle East at this time. If you have free food available for seven days, you need a way of making sure that the people that are in there are the ones that belong in there. Right? So, anyway, landing the airplane here, the imagery and the symbolism of a marriage is, present, is applied to Christ and his body of believers, the church. Christ, the bridegroom, has sacrificially and lovingly chosen the church to be his bride. We are offered the cup of choice. And on a side note, imagine what it would be to reject that cup. And worse than that, maybe even, imagine what it would be to cause others to reject that cup. Just as the betrothal period occurs in biblical times during which the bride and groom were separated until the wedding, so is the bride of Christ, that is the church, separated from Christ, separate during the church age. But her responsibility, that is our responsibility during the betrothal period, is to be faithful to him. Christians are to keep themselves pure as a testimony to their betrothal to the Lord, and more and more to respect his authority and grow in love in such a way that to do otherwise would become unthinkable. At last, the church will be united with the bridegroom, and the official wedding ceremony will take place, and with it, the eternal union of Christ and his bride will be actualized. Amen.